0: The, uh, this is a new talk this year. It's a rather ambitious talk, and, and it's a two-hour talk, which uh, I'm not even sure I'll make it through. Um, so if you need to leave, again, I won't take it personally, um, you're also welcome to leave and come back. Um, if, uh, if, if Whatever you do outside the room is your business, not mine, um, even though I am a psychiatrist and we're in Las Vegas. <laughs> So um, this is my title and there's nothing to disclose. And this is kind of what we're gonna approach today. Um, thinking about typical treatment plans and likely outcomes of primary care and pain specialists as applied to a number of cases which you'll see as they unfold. To think about some of the comorbidities associated with chronic pain, specifically the psychiatric comorbidities or psychological comorbidities. And to look at some of the cross-sectional associations of patients with chronic pain and differentiate mechanisms of actions of some of the medications used. These are just a few of the things that I I hope to take us through. So it's it's really more of, of an experiential process in the formulation of cases than it is a series of standalone facts or algorithms that I want you to appreciate. So how many of you here take care of patients? Great. Um, Any psychiatrists in the room? Good. (laughs) I can say whatever I want, right? Um, um, And uh, so you'll see Let's start with really just the relationship between chronic pain and depression. A a word that is general or vague or could mean many different things. Um, It's an obvious relationship. If you take care of these patients, they will undoubtedly say to you at some point that they have depression or that they acknowledge depression. And certainly that if you would just get their pain better, their depression would be fine. And so why are you even bringing that up? And if you push the issue, they more than likely will say to you, are you telling me my pain is not real? Do you think I'm crazy? How could you dare suggest I see a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Uh, And the cul-de-sac of dissent plays out. So what I would like to start with is this case and you can think of this as a stem or starting point. 53-year-old woman with low back pain and depression. Those are her chief complaints. She has pain in her legs, right greater than left, but acknowledges that she has pain pretty much everywhere. Her mood is sad, frustrated, angry, and she really can't do anything. She's had three lumbosacral spine surgeries for a discectomy followed by a laminectomy and then most recently a fusion. She's no longer able to work. Her husband is distant, friends have moved on. She's taking opioids on a variable schedule which makes her pain less horrible. She has intermittent injections from uh, interventionalists that help for a while and she's failed multiple medication trials. She can't tolerate any physical therapy because it makes her pain worse, and she pretty much stays at home most of the time. And her primary care a physician recently started her on an SSRI, but she doesn't really think that that has helped. Now, how many of you have seen a patient that is kind of like this? All right, so I'm not off base to say, you've seen this, right? Okay. what? usually happens, or in the cases like this that are referred to me, what tends to play out? Well, the surgeon is saying, look, we could take out your hardware, or maybe we should extend the fusion. All right? We all know that, that fusions at their border tend to fail in and uh, increase stress at that area, so it becomes the fusion creep. The anesthesiologist involved says, let's just continue the injections. They don't seem to make anything worse, and they kind of help. And maybe you're a candidate for a spinal cord stimulator. The primary care physician says, well, you're depressed, so we should continue your SSRI. Maybe we should add a muscle relaxant, and you're not sleeping very well, so we'll give you a sleeping pill. The physical therapist says, you know, you're really not doing what I tell you to do. Uh, So maybe we could ease you into it with a gym membership and get you to start exercising in some sort of way. Psychologist says you need to learn better coping skills and attend some support groups. The emergency medicine doctor that sees her in the ER when she shows up periodically with excruciating pain says you need to stop abusing your drugs and don't come back. Her attorney says, you know, you should apply for disability and maybe we should consider suing the surgeon, get you some money and some support. The Internet says, waste time talking to people with horrible outcomes. Because that's what's on the Internet, right? And other consultants say, seek the holy grail of causes and the magic bullet of treatment. So, that's what I see. Um, And you probably see it too. And ultimately the outcome for this person is terrible. Pain and depression persist and worsen. Medications increase in number and dose. Their psychosocial condition deteriorates. Their healthcare utilization increases. Eventually they get disability but it's constantly challenged and they're feeling scrutinized. They get referred for urgent psychiatry consultation because they're suicidal at times. They spend more time online telling their own horrible story. They refuse advice of consultants to pursue interdisciplinary rehabilitation. The one thing that the literature shows is helpful. And they hope that they're one of the 35% of patients to get 35% 35 better in randomized controlled trials. Now, tell me, am I wrong? This is what you see, right? And so you want to think about how can I get this person out of this rut and think about them in a different way. And the problem is, and and I've been approached this past week by a number of people from the lay world wanting to interview me about situations like this. And as you heard Steve Pasick say last night, there are a lot of questions about why is this so difficult? And Why is this such a problem and why are we in such trouble with the practice of pain medicine and the outcome of these patients? Because it's complicated. These these are not simple solutions. There is not one algorithm or one series of treatments that will get everybody well. It's a matter of trying to figure out what's going on and to formulate the individual case. And it's true, the healthcare system is not really set up to help us do that. And unfortunately, there is no help coming from the government, the FDA, the DEA, the Joint Commission, or any other top-down organization. Because the practice of medicine is one-on-one. You are seeing patients. They are counting on you. You will have to think about how can I get this individual in front of me better? Now, let's start at the top. In the general population, if you have no chronic pain, the, incidence and prevalence of, the prevalence of depression is about 6% of the population. If you have chronic pain, it jumps to about 16% of the population. It increases dramatically as you move into clinical samples. There's something magical, not necessarily in a good way, about going to see a healthcare practitioner. If you have any complaint, physical, psychological, and you go see somebody about it, that puts you in a different category because there are a lot of people out in the general population that are wandering around with all kinds of funny complaints, but yet they don't really seek treatment for them, and they don't really impair their functioning. Uh, It does vary with the sample and the methodology, and if you use very rigorous criteria based on uh, research diagnostic criteria and the DSM-3 criteria for major depression, you would say that about 30 to 50 percent of patients with chronic pain meet the criteria for a major depressive disorder. That's pretty high. And we want to make the distinction in this particular instance that Major depression is different from grief, frustration, stress, adjustment disorders, and the like. But we'll play that out a little bit. Now, in cross-sectional associations, if you take two groups of people, both have chronic pain that's otherwise identical. One has major depression and the other doesn't. This is what you see. The person with major depression has greater pain intensity, describes their life as being more out of control, uses more passive coping strategies, reports greater interference or disability from pain, actually on observation, exhibits more pain behaviors and, and disability of function, have poorer outcomes from surgeries for pain, utilize more healthcare services, retire from work earlier. Every aspect of the experience is worse. So this is a very important concept. Now, you look at this over time. The relationship between depression and pain, it's complicated. And the intuitive response is, yes, I'm in chronic pain. Therefore, I will be depressed. And the patients are saying to you, look, dummy, don't you get it? It's pretty obvious. And it's true. The majority of the data support this diathesis stress model. In other words, if you're living with a chronic stress like chronic pain, you are more likely to be discouraged, depressed, whatever, unhappy. Nobody's happy about this. But we really don't understand the etiologies of many of our pain syndromes, let alone affective states like major depression. It's pretty clear as we gain information about the neurobiology of these conditions, that they are shared. Similar neurotransmitters, similar pathways, similar areas of the brain. But we don't really understand the pathophysiology as to why one person develops chronic pain, and one person develops a mood disorder, and another person develops both. And some people don't develop either one. And when you look at a small amount of data having to do with the treatment of major depressive disorder, you see that getting major depression better does improve pain and pain-related disability. The two are intimately connected. Now, look at it from a slightly different perspective. Look at individuals that have mood disorders. They're not walking through the door with chronic pain. They have major depressive disorder. Sixty percent of these people, and it varies by country and culture, but sixty percent on average of patients with major depression will report pain symptoms at the time of their diagnosis along with a lot of other physical complaints. They don't walk through the door typically saying I'm depressed, hopeless, and suicidal and anhedonic. They say I don't feel well, I've got all these weird symptoms, I can't do the things I want to do, I'm sick, something's wrong with me. In studies that longitudinally follow patients, and, and this number has moved from eight to 13 at least, people that have major depression, that is the best predictor of whether or not they will have the persistence of chronic pain complaints or they will develop a new chronic pain syndrome. Affective disorder is a terrible risk factor for developing a chronic pain condition. And you can see that with daily headaches, atypical chest pain, various musculoskeletal disorders, low back pain, fibromyalgia, the list really goes on and on. So it's clear there's a relationship here. Now the problem is that depression is such a vague term and it encompasses so many things. And we probably shouldn't have called it major depressive disorder in psychiatry. We probably should have called it something else that stood out from grief and adjustment disorders and other reactive states. But it is what it is. What I want you to try and think about is really four different perspectives. That a patient can be sick with a disease, that the patient can be in trouble from inappropriate behaviors that they engage in, that they can be frustrated by their own vulnerabilities and lack of capacity, and that they may be demoralized by particular life events or stressors. And I'm going to walk you through these. So these perspectives we describe at Hopkins as diseases, dimensions, behaviors, and life stories. The idea here is that a disease is something that you have and it is based on the logic of categories. You're either in the category or you ain't. Dimensions, on the other hand, are what people are, their traits, what they're composed of. And this is based on the logic of gradation and quantification. You have a lot of a trait, you have a little bit of a trait. Behaviors, on the other hand, are what people do, and this is based on the logic of goals and choices. What are you trying to accomplish? and What did you do to actually try to reach that endpoint? And then finally, life stories are what patients encounter. And this is really based on the logic of narrative, the telling of a story that's very individual and has meaning to the particular individual. So let's start with diseases. The idea with a disease and this is is the classic biomedical model that all doctors are taught. There is a broken part somewhere that requires fixing. And as a result, there's an abnormality in the structure or function of some bodily process. And so what we're typically trying to find is the etiology or cause of some pathology that is resulting in the signs and symptoms which we would describe as a syndrome. So pneumonia as a syndrome with cough, fever, sputum production would have a certain type of pathology, inflammation in the lung, the presence of tissue breakdown in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately in some cases, because the etiologies differ for pneumonia, but in some cases we might find a bacteria that's present and it's susceptible to an antibiotic and we can give that antibiotic and effect a cure. So, as I was saying, the broken part is what we're after. And the idea here is that if there's a broken part, well, now normal has been transformed to abnormal. just like your car. It doesn't work right if the carburetor screwed up. <clears throat> These kind of causal relationships explain how, patho- how physiology becomes pathophysiology. And if you really want to be successful in treating a disease, you hope to God you can find a cure. And if you can't find a cure, you do your best to try to address the individual pathologies and pathophysiologic mechanisms. So what do you do if you think somebody has a disease? It's a lot different than if you think you have one of these other problems. You look for all broken parts that might cause pathology. You search. You fix as many of them as you can and you try to do that without causing even more problems. Because admittedly, most of what we do in terms of cures can cause more problems. You try to select treatments that will minimize that new damage and subsequent pathology and you avoid labeling the patient as synonymous with the defect. What does that mean? The idea here is that you you want to avoid the stigma and the stereotyping of patients by calling them what they suffer from. Schizophrenic, demented, diabetic. Because you want to avoid losing the patient in that process. And you want to focus on the fact that they are suffering from some disease process that, you know, in many ways is beyond their control. They may have done things to bring it about, But fundamentally, the part broke. You're trying to fix it, trying to engage them in helping you to fix it, but you're not necessarily blaming them for having it. And you certainly don't want to equate them with the disease. So, here's our stem. 53-year-old woman with low back pain and depression. All of the rest you've seen before. The pain follows the L5 dermatome in this instance on the right and it has a burning quality. Her depression is unresponsive to positive life events with anhedonia, the lack of ability to enjoy or experience pleasure. Good things happen to her, doesn't really affect her. Since being on increased amounts of opioids, her mood seems to be worse rather than better. A low dose SSRI improved her mood and her motivation, but that kind of petered out over time didn't sustain itself. Both gabapentin and pregabalin decreased your pain but caused sedation, an unacceptable side effect. So what do you make of this? Well, the idea here is that if we look more closely at this presentation and we think about this person as having two different disease processes, our treatment will be tailored in a different way. So we make the diagnosis, in this case, of suffering from major depression and having ridiculous neuropathic pain. The plans for surgeries and further interventions are essentially put on hold because we don't think that they're going to address the underlying problem, and we think the person is at risk for having a bad outcome by virtue of the major depression being present and amplifying the bad experience. <clears throat> All ineffective medications that lack specificity for these two conditions are tapered and discontinued. We start the person on an SNRI and titrate that over several weeks. We add an anticonvulsant for augmentation and titrate that, checking serum levels. Her husband now is more encouraged and supportive because he sees improvement and her getting better. There's a spontaneous increase in activities of daily living and a return to exercising. And now discussions with her employer about a possible return to part-time work are facilitated. Now, what is it that makes this case go better? Or what is it about it that you expect to glean from the tailored treatment that I described? This woman has a major depressive disorder. Here are the symptoms, or the criteria of such. Five or more of the symptoms I'm going to show you, presenting in the same two-week period, representing a change from our previous pre-morbid baseline. At least one of the symptoms is either a depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure, that's the anhedonia. The symptoms cause clinically significant distress and impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And the episode is not attributable to physiologic effects of a substance or another medical condition. It's its own problem. Now, here are some of the classic symptoms. There's a the depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, observed by others. And it can be described in different ways. Some people will say it's, they're sad. Other people will say they're kind of empty or numb. And other people will talk about just this kind of hopeless quality about, where they are in life. There's a decreased interest or pleasure in all activities. There's a significant loss or gain of weight, insomnia or hypersomnia, agitation or psychomotor retardation, fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. In some way, I deserve this. I'm a bad person. God has forsaken me. I don't really, I don't really deserve to be better or to get the care I need. There's a diminished ability to think, concentrate, or be decisive. This kind of paralysis or inability to multitask that you'll see with patients that have a major depression. And then recurrent thoughts of death, not just fear of dying, but suicidal ideation, making a suicidal attempt, or coming up with a specific plan for committing suicide. That's not normal for people that have chronic pain. To be thinking about wanting to die, killing yourself, no matter how bad things are, it's not normal. It's more associated with the presence of a major depression. When you get the depression better, these kinds of thoughts, no matter how bad the underlying illness is, typically go away. What are some of the critical elements or the distinctions that you're gonna be looking for? That there's a sustained change in mood, this sense of self. You're a good person or a bad person. Your vital sense as being a body that's well and capable of doing things and able to meet challenges versus it really isn't. It's disconnected from circumstances. Most people who are demoralized or who are stressed, if they get a reprieve or something great happens to them, their grandkids come over for dinner, They win the lottery, whatever, they experience joy about that, and it distracts them from what's going on. Not so with people that have a major depression. The suicidality I've talked about, this loss of pleasure, a deterioration in their self-image as a good person, these funny inabilities to think through things and solve problems. And then occasionally you'll see these very stigmatized or stereotypic aspects of their vital rhythms, what you might think of as circadian rhythms. People have these funny variations in mood over the course of the day. Typically it's when they first wake up. Wake up, the mood is terrible, the outlook for the day is is bad, and if they can get themselves going then oftentimes will feel better later in the day. Similarly, you'll see these disruptions of sleep rhythms where people will have a loss of REM sleep, a loss of deep sleep, and they will consistently wake up a couple of hours earlier than their normal baseline wake time and not be able to get back to sleep. And it almost seems like, indeed, some circuit is broken or misfiring. Now, there's the aspect of neuropathic pain in this patient, another disease process. And there are a number of mechanisms that underlie most neuropathic pain syndromes. There's a loss of large diameter myelinated sensory afferent inhibition of nociceptive transmission. What the hell does that mean? All right, you've all hit your thumb with a hammer or something, slammed it in a door or something. You've all rubbed that thumb and it felt better. And then as soon as you stopped rubbing it, the pain came back. You have just experienced the gait control theory of pain based on this statement. Pain fibers tend to be small, unmyelinated, slow processing. Non-pain fibers that deal with light touch, position sense, coordination and movement tend to be fast, myelinated and powerful. So, you rub your thumb, you're stimulating those fibers. They override the input from the sensory pain fibers and gate it out or block it. And when you stop that stimulation, the pain has an open gate. So in neuropathic conditions, oftentimes these fibers are damaged. There's no way to close the gate. In addition, you have hyperactivity in dorsal horn cells that are processing pain information, and so the system is kind of constantly on and firing when it shouldn't be. There's what we call central sensitization, where a number of amplifiers in the spinal cord and above that are turned on. And so now the signal comes in, but it's jacked up. Any place that you have damage, demyelination, or attempts at regrowth, the system is just a little bit more fragile or cranky and therefore likely to fire off an extra impulse and hence more stimulation. Uh, The sympathetically maintained pain states, there's a sensitivity of afferent nociceptors from sympathetic input, norepinephrine and other aspects of the fight or flight response and there's a whole host of neuromediators that can make this system more sensitive turned on for longer periods of time now when you think about neuropathic pain the classic is diabetic peripheral neuropathy trigeminal neuralgia postherpetic neuralgia but in fact when you explore a number of different medical conditions here's diabetes postherpetic neuralgia trigeminal neuralgia what are these other alphabet soups Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injury, post-amputation pain, cancer, exposure to alcohol, complex regional pain syndrome or RSD, certain types of low back pain, stroke, traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis and AIDS, migraine, exposure to medications. All of these are associated with a neuropathic pain component and hence have these underlying mechanisms. Why is that important? Well, in part because it falls into our construct of a disease. There's a broken part here in pathophysiology, but in part because we have ways to treat this. And it just so happens that antidepressants are one of the ways in which we treat this, not because everybody with neuropathic pain has major depression, but because these processes are pharmacologically accessible through these agents. What do antidepressants do in neuropathic pain? Well, if you raise the levels of norepinephrine and serotonin, you increase the body's ability to, descendingly, coming out of the brain and the brainstem, inhibit pain transmission at the spinal cord. If you have an increase in alpha adrenergic activity, you can decrease the norepinephrine stimulation of receptors. That's that sympathetic component. Antidepressants have an effect on NMDA receptors, which are one of the major amplifiers in the spinal cord that jack up that signal. If you block those receptors, you turn down that hyperexcitability. And it turns out that a lot of antidepressants actually block sodium or calcium channels in neurons and therefore make an unstable, irritable neuron more quiet or normalized in its activity. So all of this to decrease the activity in a hyperexcitable setting. Now, what about these different antidepressants? Here's a, here's a list of some of the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Remember, when I, went to, when I went to medical school and was in training, we had MAOIs and tricyclics. Prozac came out when I was in training. I'm sorry to say I'm that old. Um, Since then, look at all of these agents. We have so many choices and they're all very good antidepressants. SSRIs are the most commonly prescribed antidepressants. They're very selective for serotonin. They have relatively few side effects and they tend to be pretty safe in pregnancy. We have a lot of experience now with, with women that are pregnant being treated with these agents. So they're excellent antidepressants. But when it comes to neuropathic pain management, they're not so good. Everybody has anecdotes of a patient that responded to them, but for the most part, they're not good for neuropathic pain. They do have fewer and less toxic side effects. but. Oftentimes, the SSRIs have a lot of drug-drug interactions because of their effect on the cytochrome P450 system. So you have to think about adding them in to an already complicated medical patient's pharmacologic treatment. In contrast, there are the serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, the SNRIs, Cymbalta, Effexor, and now a growing list. Why are they important? Well, because not only do they increase serotonin, but they increase norepinephrine. They seem to have fairly rapid effects on people, and there's pretty good studies to show that they can have independent effects on neuropathic pain and major depression. And I have a number of cases where one of these agents will help somebody's pain but not their depression, or help their depression but not their pain. Nobody really understands that. What about these drugs? They they are considered dual reuptake inhibitors because of the serotonin and the norepinephrine. They don't have affinity for other receptors in the brain or the body, and so they have a relatively good side effect profile. People like to talk about, well, how serotonin versus norepinephrine are they? As if that makes a difference. It it might, but we haven't figured that out. Venlafaxine is mostly a serotonergic drug unless you get it into higher doses, which is why when you're treating somebody with pain, you push the dose to about 300 milligrams. Deloxetine, more balanced. Uh, Pristique, more balanced. Nelnasopram or Civella, Fatsima, they're more balanced, but nobody has seen that play out in real-world effect. And then there are the tricyclics, an old group of medicines, been around a long time. There are many of them. Most of these you may not even recognize because mostly what you see is Elevil or nortriptyline, occasionally Desipramine. The is out of their chemical structure, they have lots of different effects. They affect so many different receptors. They're, they're dirty drugs. And that's why they have so many side effects. Dry mouth, urinary retention, constipation, orthostatic hypotension, cardiac arrhythmias in high doses, and that's why they're lethal. And so people can kill themselves in an overdose of these drugs where it's very hard to kill yourself with an overdose of SSRIs or SNRIs. They're helpful with pain, though, and they're really cheap. I mean, pennies a day for a tricyclic as opposed to dollars per day for the others. And so what is the distinction here? If you think about the management of pain, it seems to be that the norepinephrine component of these drugs makes a difference or is in some way necessary to get control over neuropathic pain, whereas pure serotonergic drugs are not nearly as effective. So when you think about pain management, tricyclics really are the gold standard, but they have all these downsides. SSRIs have now been overly relied on for the treatment of depression because they're safe and effective, but they're not very good for pain. And so the SNRIs have really become the new darling. Use those, they're safe, They work for both. Um, It's kind of a no-brainer. But the one thing I want to leave you with in this section is that if you have a patient that has a major depressive disorder, get that better. Put that into remission. I don't care what medicine it takes to do that because if you do, it will have a huge impact on the experience of chronic pain and it will make the underlying pain problem, neuropathic or otherwise, easier to treat. So here's the optimistic outcome for scenario number one. The depression remitted and the person started to experience positive emotions, become more optimistic and have more energy for their daily life. Their pain, their neuropathic pain, decreased in intensity and their residual pain was described as not interfering with their daily life. Their activity increased with gradual disappearance of myofascial pain because now they're moving again and they're starting to normalize their body mechanics. Active exercise normalized those body mechanics further and increased their strength and endurance. This is a person who had previous success in work and used that as a rationale to return to full-time employment, saying, I think I can really do this. Their marital stress and financial problems improved with mutual effort because now the person is back online. This is, this is a person who is offline because of their illness. And once they can participate with their partner, can start to solve problems. Their increased socialization with friends, reinforced a network of support. And now all of a sudden, they don't have time to go to the doctor. They don't have time to sit on the internet commiserate. They're doing stuff and living their life and getting back to it. All right? I'm not making this up. This is based on patients I've seen and taken care of over the years. But it's a very specific subcategory. Now, let's look at another perspective. That of dimensions. The idea here is that all of us are composed of traits. Height, weight, introversion, neuroticism, intelligence, the list goes on. Eye color, whatever you want. But it's how you're put together. And we can measure those and quantify the amount. Every trait is not good or bad. It's not good to be have height. It just is. And so... Height conveys certain inherent strengths and vulnerabilities in the same way that introversion or intelligence converts that inherent strength or weakness. What does it depend on? depends on the context or the demand that you're placed under. So if you think about these personal features, they're usually quantified along some spectrum of measurement, a continuum. And the vulnerabilities of that trait are provoked by the setting that you're in. And when there's a mismatch, when you can't meet the demands of a task, that's upsetting to you. Think about all the times you've tried to learn something new. You've taken a course, or somebody's asked you to do a new task in your job. Your kid has asked you to solve a problem on their computer. And you say, ugh, I I, I don't know how to do this. It's upsetting. That's what we're talking about. And as a result, what you really are looking for is somebody to help guide you towards settings that will utilize your strengths and avoid having to provoke your weaknesses, or at least walk you through something that will teach you how to do it and give you some assistance. So what should you be doing when you're interacting with a patient and you're thinking, I wonder if this is related to a trait vulnerability. You should be asking, who is this person? Okay, yeah, I know you have diabetes, or I know you have major depression, or I know you don't, but who are you? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Are you smart, or are you not so smart? Are you this, or are you that? And you're trying to quantify how much of a trait the person possesses because ultimately you're thinking, I might have to help this person overcome a deficiency or an excess of a particular trait. And in doing that, I'm also going to be thinking about what are the ideal environments for you? If you're an extreme introvert, it's going to be very tough for you to be a salesperson. It's not impossible, but it's going to be very tough. And you're going to need help doing that if that's what you really need to do or want to do with your life. So, let's think about our case now. Same case, these first three lines, but now here's new information for this scenario. The pain is described as a dull ache with tightness from her hip down to the outer thigh and into her knee. She has multiple somatic symptoms that are noted in her review of systems. The depression is more of an anger with a lack of progress and anxiety over her persistent symptoms. The medications that she's taking cause side effects and just mask the underlying cause in her words. She's spending excessive time cataloging her symptoms and exercising to try and stay fit and requesting more consultations to find the broken part and fix it. She's driven to get this better. So. If we look at this case more intensely, what we end up deciding is that she doesn't have an affective disorder or even an anxiety disorder, that it might explain some of this. As we review the pain workup for completeness and a lack of new signs, we're relatively satisfied. There's not a lot there that we're missing. As we get to know her, we uncover that this is a person we would describe as an unstable introvert, and I'll tell you what, that, what I mean by that. We provided a detail-oriented formulation of persistent post-operative pain for her, giving her more information. <clears throat> Added that usual strengths of organization and fixing problems are now vulnerabilities that are provoking her anxiety about failing herself. In other words, look, normally you're very good at doing these things. They come naturally to you. You're trying to apply them to the circumstance. It's not working. That's frustrating to you and upsetting. So, what do we want you to do? Stop collecting more information. These are patients who go out and gather information off the web and from other patients and from other doctors and then present it to you, oftentimes in a binder, And they say, here you go, doc. Make sense of this for me. I've gotten all this stuff for you. And I'm sure it's all important and useful. Figure it out. In fact, what they're doing is collecting so much noise that the signal-to-noise ratio now is just lost. And they've just got a bunch of information. You refer them to a psychologist for biofeedback and relaxation training to deal with some of the anxiety. And you increase the frequency of their follow-up to track their condition and to limit consultations because this is a person that you don't want going out getting more information. You want to take hold of them and manage them yourself. So this is the idea behind most traits. You've all seen the normal distribution. Most of us, unfortunately, are average, right? Our IQ is average, our height is average, our temperament is average, but there are a few of us who are out here at the extremes. And the extremes are what we're interested in because they can get us to great success, but they can also get us into trouble. The idea here is that when you're talking about disposition there's a tendency to respond in a certain manner under particular circumstances. There's there's an inherent and latent characteristic that is evoked or brought to light by events and these psychological dispositions resemble our physical dispositional attributes just like the solubility of a substance or an electrical resistance in the wire. There's a predictable relationship. This is what copper is. This is how it responds. This is what an introvert is. This is how they tend to respond. So psychological dispositions can elude attention if an extensive personal history is unavailable. If you don't spend the time, if you don't know who it is you're taking care of, you don't really know who they are. And it's hard to do that when time is limited and there's so much other stuff going on and the person is focused on pain and other physical symptoms and wanting a treatment it pays to get to know the person. So, one of the most common things that we talk about is the trait of introversion or extroversion. And what are some of the distinctions that we find? Well, extroverts tend to be action-oriented, while introverts tend to be more thought-oriented. They're reflective. They're thinking things through. The extrovert is saying, Come on, let's do something. Tell me what to do. Let me get this fixed. Let me get this moving." Extroverts like a breadth of knowledge and influence. They want to make sure that all the bases are covered and they've experienced all that there is to experience, whereas introverts tend to seek depth of knowledge and influence. Are you really an expert? Do you really know what you're talking about? I want to stick with you, but eh, maybe I need somebody else. Extroverts often prefer more frequent interactions. They like the social contact. I'll come back tomorrow. Uh, Okay. (laughs) While introverts prefer more substantial interactions. I'll come today, but am I only going to get eight minutes? Because I really need more time. I can say four hours. Extroverts tend to recharge and get their energy from spending time with people, while introverts recharge and get their energy from spending time alone. If you're an introvert and you've been at this conference for too long, at some point you say to yourself, I need to go back to my room, and I don't want to talk to anybody. Or if you've been drugged out by your partner to go shopping, and you've had to interact with a bunch of salespeople, who are extroverts, by the way, At some point you say, I'm overstimulated. I don't think I can do this anymore. Whereas if you're an extrovert, this is the best time of your life. All right, extroverts, punishments fail. They're not punishment sensitive. They like rewards. Of course they do, right? They like people, they like novelty, they like new situations. If somebody says, this isn't going well, or I don't like you, eh, okay, I'll find somebody who does. Um, They're more responsive to positive reinforcement. Why do you think salespeople are paid on commission? It's a reward. Sell this, get this bonus. All right, I'll sell 10. They're quick to decondition. It doesn't kind of... It doesn't really have a lasting effect. They can kind of move on from things, and they don't get stuck the way introverts do. Introverts' rewards are not so interesting, although they're very responsive to negative reinforcement. If you don't pass this test, you will fail and never become a doctor, and your mother will be very disappointed. (laughs) I'll study all night long. I will not go to the movie. I will not see my girlfriend. I will get the work done. They're poorly responsive to positive reinforcement, they're slow to decondition, it's impossible to extinguish an introvert's response because it just hangs with them. Now, The other aspect that influences extroverts and introverts is this aspect of instability or or what some people call neuroticism, emotional instability. Um, Those folks are, are disrupted by almost every negative reinforcer. Because everything negative tends to generate an uncomfortable response in some way. So what are some of these provoked responses? All right, The idea behind unstable extroverts as opposed to unstable introverts is that you see a different manifestation of this provoked distress. So the unstable extrovert is more likely to be angry, sulking, blaming. And boy, on alcohol, they're a mess. They're they're not good intoxicated. Unstable introverts, on the other hand, tend to kind of steep into this chronic demoralization and depressive state. They have a lot of anxiety over change, thinking, oh, this is not gonna go well. I don't wanna do this. And they get stuck and paralyzed with decision making where they're constantly thinking, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if that's right. I don't know, what should I do? What do you think? They're constantly seeking reassurance. So introverts, more internally focused, reflective, solitary, analytical, they tend to live in the past and the future and their punishment averse. Now, when introverts are in pain, that's a particular context or demand. They're prone to somatic preoccupation, so they're constantly, instead of paying attention to the details of their world and their job, now they're paying attention to their body. Oh yeah, I have this, oh, my Mac. I wonder if that's relevant. What's wrong with them? They tend to suffer more in silence, they're focused on the details, and they're often coming back to you saying, what did you miss? Because I've got all this other information to give you, and you need to figure this out. What is going to go wrong if we don't do that? And they're really fixated on, I don't want to feel bad. Neurotics, on the other hand, the unstable, they really tend to experience negative emotions, much more so than positive ones. Their emotions are intense. They, they don't handle stress well or cope well. Oftentimes, these are the catastrophizers of your practice. They're also unpredictable. Sometimes if something happens that you think is not a big deal, they have an explosion. Sometimes a major event occurs and they seem to do okay. That's what's so vexing about them is that you're never quite sure what you're going to get with somebody who is intensely neurotic. But they tend to feel easily threatened. They're sensitive to the withdrawal of attention, so as you're trying to get this person out of the door, Uh, They're saying, hey, hey, what's wrong? What did I do? Why don't you want to spend more time with me? I had a woman just the other day say to me, I don't understand what I've done wrong that you want to get rid of me. I said, it it really has nothing to do with you. I know it's hard to believe, but you really need to see this person. I'm just trying to get you to the right person. Yeah, but what have I done to upset you? (laughs) Nothing, really. And as I said before, they can be the catastrophizers. So when they're in pain, they are very distressed. Their feelings dominate their interactions with the healthcare practitioner. They tend to exhibit a lot of maladaptive coping. They're inconsistent, so they drive you crazy. You say, do this, they try it a little bit, they come back, you say, did you do that? I did it for a little while, but it didn't really seem to help, and so I gave up on it. Now I'm doing the exact opposite, and I'm a mess. Okay, that didn't help. They're prone to the sense of attack, uh, both feeling attacked and and attacking you. Um, They're very defensive about what they've been doing, and they tend to think that the worst is going to happen. So how do you help an introvert? Um, They really need extra time. They need to have the sense that you're listening to them and not blowing them off. They also need more detailed information. And and these are the patients that, um, in a busy surgical practice, the nurse practitioner tends to spend more time with. Because the surgeon whips in and whips out and says, see you later. And the person is sitting there saying, I I need more help, I need more information. So the nurse practitioner sits down and goes over everything with them. Discourage them from external sources of information. I really do not want you looking at the Internet. Let's focus on anxiety reduction techniques like visual imagery and meditation. Do careful physical examinations because they are reassured by your thoroughness in the sense that you have laid hands on them and you know what's wrong with them. Minimize consultations because consultations just induce more noise and get them distracted. And undoubtedly the consultant will say something trying to be helpful but actually disengaging the person and sending them down the wrong path. Um, They need very comprehensive plans and predictable follow-up schedules. And they, they need to understand that the body is not a machine that's easily fixed. Because the introverts, remember, these are the engineers and the accountants and the mathematicians. And so they're very much in this idea of, well, if there's a broken part, I get that, fix it. Well, it's not so straightforward. How do you help the neurotic person? You you really try to avoid upsetting theorizing. Don't give them crazy theories. Be straight with them. Keep it simple. Keep it basic. And say to them, look, I need you to do things first. I need you to follow my instructions. You will then see that if you do that, your feelings become more positive. Because if you just wait to feel good in order to do anything, it'll never happen. You also want to model for them appropriate behavior. If you get angry at them or you get all worked up, it just becomes a firestorm. And it's important to point out to them that the worst really hasn't occurred. You have to look for opportunities to say, that really didn't happen, that hasn't happened so far, I don't think it's going to happen. These things are happening that are good. We're on track. Stick with me. And so treatment really requires guidance. And and the idea behind temperament, because everybody will tell you, well, you can't change temperament. And you're right. You're an introvert. You're going to be an introvert the rest of your life. It's just the way it is. You can learn to be more extroverted and to follow different scripts and techniques and do things that you weren't really comfortable with, but you're still going to be an introvert. It's not that these are untreatable, but it rests on the idea that the conceptual problem of mistaking the dimensional foundation for the clinical issue. That's not the problem. It's not that you're an introvert, it's that you're an introvert in this situation. The dimension can't be changed, but their responses and their provocations can be addressed. and you can always teach people skills. Think about how anxious you might have been before giving your first lecture to somebody. And with practice and help and different tricks, you figured out how to do that. And maybe it even got to be enjoyable because you developed a skill set that overcame your temperament. So how do we think about this as this particular case is turning out well? Well, they were impressed by the referral to an expert in biofeedback who could help them address their distress and some of their somatic symptoms. And remember, introverts are impressed by detail and the equipment, if any of you have been to biofeedback, there's there's some equipment there. It's kind of impressive. There's lots of lights and bells and whistles. Okay, goes a long way for the right person. Their focused obsessionality on learning relaxation techniques perfectly was a, played to their strength. I need you to learn how to do this. There are several steps. It's very complicated, but I think you can do it, because you have the right makeup for it. Okay, I'm going to do that. And they did. Whereas other people say, I can't learn that crap, that's a bunch of nonsense. <clears throat> Anxiety and somatic symptoms decreased with body scanning techniques that were more helpful. They rejected external information sources as not specific to their problems, the Internet. They were reassured by more frequent appointments to update the doctor. These are the people you want to bring back. Say, you know what? Let me see you in a week or two. Doesn't have to be a long appointment. I just want to hear how you're doing. Or a phone call. I have a lady right now who's going through, who's very much like this. Let's talk on Monday and Friday for five minutes. It really doesn't take more than that. All she wants to do is update me and hear what I think. I don't think much. <laughs> <clears throat> As pain and other symptoms improved, it was clear that she had an iliopsoas tendonitis and an IP band syndrome that were diagnosable because that had been lost in all of the other noise. But now, with with the noise out of the system, oh, look, you have a very specific myofascial syndrome The physical therapists are well aware of and are pretty good at treating. So prescribe physical therapy with a very specific regimen of rest because remember what the person was doing? Exercising all the time. I must work harder. I can get through this. I can overcome it. No, no, you're just making it worse right now. Stop. Do the stretching, do the massage, let things calm down, and then we can address the underlying problem. It validated for them that there actually was something wrong, but it was fixable. So again, the body is a machine. Now that comes into play. And eventually the person asked to decrease the frequency of appointments because they wanted to focus on getting back to their job. They fixed the problem. You don't have to reject them. You don't have to tell them you don't want to see them as much. They will do it for you. All right. The third perspective, behaviors. These are not the behaviors of just moving, walking, bending. These are the behaviors that are much more complicated and what we refer to as motivated. So they're goal-directed. There's a design and a purpose behind your actions. And complex behaviors are usually the result of some personal choice. You decided to come to this conference and attend this particular lecture. There's a reason for that. It's different for all of you, but it's there. And you made the choice to do it because you were hoping to reach that goal. Now, you may leave here saying, "But well, that was a waste. Um, but That's what's going on. So the idea here is that in the behavioral perspective, there are drives like appetites or ideas. There are choices that you make. And then there's learning that occurs. You leave here today, you think, never listen to that guy again. I learned something. Um, You may learn something else, which is reinforcing in a different way. And we are constantly making choices, constantly learning things, and that affects our interest in doing that again or not. And so, this is how we develop complex habits. <clears throat> so, behaviors really have to do with pa- what patients are doing. And in the healthcare domain with chronic pain conditions, patients are often doing things that are not in their best interest. They're seeing too many doctors. They're taking too many medicines. They're not doing the kind of things that they should do. They're avoiding things because they hurt. They don't want to confront a certain situation or stress, so they don't. So you have to look for what are the behaviors that are problematic. You have to recognize or try and figure out what are the designs and purposes of their actions. And you have to recognize that at some basic level, If you want a behavior to change, you have to stop it. You have to get the person to stop doing something in order to do something else. And the person is doing something because they're getting some form of reinforcement out of it. It may not be healthy, it may not be good, it may be negative, but they're getting something out of it. It's the best way they can come up with with how to do it. So it is important to point out problematic behaviors when they occur and and to draw people's attention to this and why you're trying to change it. It's also important to begin gently insisting that people take responsibility for their choices. You you got here through a certain number of decisions. Maybe some of those decisions were not the best ones. Let's look at how you might have made different decisions. And emphasize looking for options to stop undermining your own improvement. Reinforce productive behaviors. A lot of times doctors will tell me, there's nothing positive about this person. I can't can't reinforce anything, they're a disaster, I hate them. (laughs) Look, you can always find something productive, right? You can, uh, if any of you have raised children, you know this is true. Your child will come up to you with the craziest of things, and you look at them and you say, that's wonderful, honey, I love you. Same idea here. Patient shows up for an appointment, glad you showed up. It's good to see you. I know it was hard to make it here, but you did, and I'm I'm pleased with that. Patient shows up five minutes late, you know, I'm glad you didn't show up 10 minutes late. All right? You can do this. Look for all possible drivers of their actions and not just placing blame on them. Try to figure out what it is that is motivating the person. What's the goal? What are you trying to accomplish by this? You want more surgery? You want more attention? You want an excuse? You want, you know, again, it's not a judgment, it's just trying to figure out the system. Okay, so here's our third case same first three lines. Pain is centered more in the low back rather than the legs and described more as sharp and exacerbated by movement. The depression is really a sense of feeling scared and being fearful that they're injuring themselves when they try to do things. Any attempt at trying to be functional makes the pain worse. Activity is followed by extended periods of rest and more medications. All the behaviors are marked by inconsistency and noncompliance, and when confronted, the patient admits to feeling overwhelmed and unable to cope. Alright? This is the classic kind of fear and avoidance model, um, and there's an element of addiction here with the noncompliance and overuse of medicines. So how would you tailor your approach to this particular formulation? Well, you say to them, look, I'm very concerned about the lack of a systematic approach. You don't seem to have a plan. There just seems to be kind of reactions. That's not good. You utilize motivational interviewing to initiate changes that you want to see happen. And I'll talk a little bit about that. You develop a plan for trying to stabilize their medication use. They're they're currently on a bunch of opioids and benzos and you begin to talk to them about the syndrome of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. The fact that taking more and more opioids can oftentimes lead to a more generalized sense of increased pain rather than pain relief. You discuss the elements of rebound symptoms and withdrawal that occurs when you take your medicines inconsistently. You add basic sleep hygiene techniques to improve insomnia. You add visual imagery and self-hypnosis for anxiety reduction. You refer to active physical therapy for desensitization and increase in range of motion in a controlled setting. And you refer the person to an addiction medicine specialist for group behavioral therapy with people that have been through similar types of problems and can provide support and reassurance and confrontation. So what's the idea behind an addiction? Remember, if you're prescribing something or you're doing something that's good for you, your function becomes more ordered. More successful, more expert, more whatever. In the, pro- in the face of an addiction, your function becomes more disordered. You lose control of something that you're doing, you're preoccupied with something that you want to do that's not good for you, and you keep doing it despite bad outcomes. It doesn't matter whether it's drinking or drugs or sex or collecting coins you can get into trouble with behaviors. And the elements of that addiction are that your control over it becomes impaired, and that's this idea of compulsive use. You feel like you must do it. I, I really have got to do that. You're not able to take your medicines as prescribed. You're frequently requesting early renewals. You, you come in saying, well, uh, my prescription was lost or stolen or my dog ate it. I uh, had a patient tell me once that her prescription was in her purse. The purse fell over. A mouse crawled into the purse. I don't make this stuff up, really. I don't need to. The, the mouse ate the prescription. What are you going to do? Give her a new prescription, right? <clears> they <throat> can't produce some pre- medications when asked. They're abusing their medications or other drugs or alcohol and you see evidence of withdrawal symptoms. This is all a sense that the person's control is impaired. Now that stands in contrast to the preoccupation of of using the substance or what we think of as craving. Um, And and the way this manifests itself in, in a pain clinic is these people are not interested in other recommendations for how to manage the situation. There's a laser beam of focus. I need my medicine, give it to me, that's all I'm here for." They're not interested in rehabilitation. They're getting prescriptions from multiple sources because they want to make sure they have access to it, and there's preference for specific medications, especially the highly reinforcing medications, which tend to be the short-acting forms. When the person tells you, I can't take extended-release oxycodone, I can only take short-acting oxycodone. That does not make sense to you. And then there's the use despite harm, which which really gets at this quality of of the behavior is unresponsive to feedback. You drive out of a restaurant tonight, you get pulled over for DUI, you've got a positive blood alcohol level, you know, the average person is going to say, holy cow, that what a disaster, I'm never going to do that again. But the alcoholic will say, "Eh, damn cop. He was laying in wait for me. Las Vegas, I'm never coming back here. So, And part of it is that people are persistently impaired and over-sedated and their function is deteriorating. So they have less and less that is engaging them and, and that they're responsive to and their world becomes more narrow and as things go bad, it doesn't have much of an impact on them. They've already lost their job, lost their wife, lost their whatever. Keep going. So part of the problem is that what we see in taking care of patients in general in medicine is that the usual care model begins to fail us with these more chronic illnesses and these types of problems. There's an inclination to confront or persuade patients with action plans prior to their readiness to change, and that doesn't work. You say to somebody, you need to lose weight, you need to eat right, you need to take your medicines as prescribed, the average person doesn't impact them. Many of you have heard me say before, 50% of us do not do what our doctor tells us to do. We just don't, not because we're bad people, but it's hard to make changes. We don't do it. So for a doctor or a healthcare practitioner to sit there and beat on somebody to do things that they want them to do, if they're not really ready to do it, wasted effort. How do you get people to do things? You have to have a relationship with them. How many times have you told a friend that they should do a particular thing? And they've looked at you and said, you don't know what I need to do. I can guarantee you that's not as close a friend as you thought. On the other hand, somebody that you're really intimate with, you can tell them to do some really difficult things. And they will say, wow, yeah, you're probably right. I do need to do that. Thanks. That's the idea here. It's the relationship that helps you. And talking is now replaced by listening. And that evokes patients' natural use of language about change. This is the idea behind motivational interviewing. Try to hear where the patient is. Try to figure out what they're struggling with. Try to get them to talk about, why would you change? Why would you make a difference? Don't worry about what I think or what I want. You tell me. And undoubtedly, they will figure out some reason and that will begin to reduce resistance. So you're engaging in a paradigm shift. It's not getting people to do what the therapist wants. It's getting them to do what they want. All of the models that are built around deficiency, in other words, the patient's empty in some way and we need to give them stuff. We need to tell them what to do or give them something to take, tell them to cut something out. The idea here is that we're trying to give them knowledge or insight or skills or correct their thinking or or up their motivation. But the idea here with motivational interviewing is that that doesn't typically work. If you assume that the people already have the ability that it's just a matter of getting them to manifest it and engage it. Now you're helping them to explore their own values and their motivations and how they might be served by the status quo or by making a change. Tell me what you're interested in. Tell me what you're good at. Tell me what you don't like about being sick. Tell me what you don't like about giving yourself insulin. Whatever it is that you're having trouble with. Sometimes people will say to you, I'm perfectly happy the way things are. This is all I'm interested in. Okay, well, maybe we can continue the conversation, or maybe we should just let things ride for a while. On the other hand, you know, I would like to do things differently. I just don't know how to do it. Or every time I try to do it, I fail, and that gets discouraging. Every time I try to lose weight, I get really hungry. I eventually break down. I eat a bunch of stuff I shouldn't, and I feel miserable. I give up okay, you are able to do this. You can make choices, whether you're going to change, when you're going to change, how you're going to change, but I believe you have what you need to do that. I'm just here to help you think through it and to be your coach and facilitator. And so the idea that you're trying to project to people is not that you're mad at them or you think that they're deficient in some way, but I, you have confidence in them. I know that you want to make things better, I know that you have the skills to do that, and I think you can make some positive changes. I'll help you do that." So the definition of motivational interviewing really is a a directive, client-centered counseling style for eliciting behavior change by helping clients to explore and resolve their ambivalence. Because this is the problem. I want to be better. I want to do it differently. I'm not sure I can do it, or I don't know if it's worth it, or I don't know if I can even get close. So it's a person-centered counseling style for addressing the common problem of ambivalence about change. It was first used in the treatment of alcoholism and getting people to contemplate stopping drinking. And it's a particular way of helping people to recognize and do something about their current problems. Do you recognize this as a problem? Some people don't. I didn't know it was an issue. Other people, yeah, I do know it's a problem, but I don't know what to do. In medical applications, you can see this applied to just getting people to follow instructions, making changes in lifestyle and modify risk factors, helping people to be aware of potential for change in behavior that's resulting in improved health parameters like stopping smoking, The nice thing about it is that it can be applied to a wide range of behaviors. It can be done in relatively brief consultations. And the effect sizes for these interventions are usually quite large. So this is something that almost anybody can do if they adopt a certain mindset. Instead of lecturing to your patients, asking them, you know, what what is it that you want? And how is it that you see things being different? And is that something that you think you can do? What help do you need? I could do that. Maybe you want to try that. And let's talk about next time how it went. And I'll help you figure out whether it could be done differently or better. And patients then start to try, which is all you're really asking. Identifying and mobilizing intrinsic values and goals to stimulate behavior change. Why do you want things to be different? What do you value? Well, I really would like to be living longer and see my kids get married. And Okay, those are good goals. They're important to you, not me. If they're important to you, how are you going to get there? Well, I'm not sure. So it's elicited from the patient, not imposed by me. And the conversation is designed to elicit and clarify and resolve the ambivalence. I'm not sure I understand what's so hard about that. Well, it's this, and then it's that, and then this happens. Oh, okay. So let me just clarify that. You're telling me the following things? Yeah, you got it. That's it. Oh, I see. Okay. And what are the benefits and costs associated with making a change? Are you ready to make a change? Readiness is not a client trait, but it's a product of the interpersonal reaction. Everybody is capable of change. It's not something that's hardwired. But the idea is, okay, let let me know when you're there and how can I facilitate getting you to that and feeling comfortable taking a risk of doing something different? The resistance and denial you get from patients is often a a signal that you should change your motivational strategy. If every time you're saying to somebody, you know, this is what I want you to do and this is how you should do it, and they say, I don't think so. I can't do that. That's too expensive. I don't have time for that. It's not their problem. You should be thinking about, okay, how can I re-engage them in a different way? How can I do less and get more out of it? Listening and reinforcing their belief in their ability to carry out and succeed is essential. If they don't think they can do this, at least at some level, they won't. The therapeutic relationship is a partnership that respects their autonomy. You do have a role. You are living with yourself more than I am living with you. I see you once a month for half an hour. You're with yourself 24-7. If you can't do this, I sure as hell can. A set of techniques and counseling style that continue to focus on eliciting change from them and decreasing talk about how things must stay the same or cannot change. And so there are phases to motivational interviewing. The first phase really is that you're focusing on a listening change talk, this concept of change talk, trying to get somebody to talk about, well, I suppose I could, I I think I want things to be different, or maybe I could do something differently. And when their ambivalence is resolved, then you begin to see motivation and the interview transitions to, okay, what are we going to do? What would you like to try? What do you think you're capable of doing? I don't want to tell you to do something impossible. And in the second phase, it's look, you know, this is a good decision. I think you really could do this, try some of these things. Let's try them and see what happens. I'll help you figure it out whether it was it was good or not. And then trying to convert that motivation into a stronger commitment that, you know, I really this really is an important goal for me and I really do want to get there, and I'm going to try this particular plan. Okay, I think that makes sense. I might change it this way. What do you think about that? Well, that's that's not a bad idea. So you're expressing empathy to people. The idea is you're, you're not blaming them for where they are right now. You're just accepting it. Look, this is where you are. You're not happy. You're not doing as well as you would like to be doing. I understand that you can't quite figure out how to do this and that you're not sure if it's going to work. But I am listening to you, I'm trying to understand your position. Now let's develop the discrepancy. In other words, this is where you are, this is where you'd like to be. There's a difference, right? I'd just like to highlight that for you, you're not where you'd like to be and then Thinking about rolling with the resistance. You have to acknowledge that the patient does have the ability to come up with something that they're going to do differently. They have the solution, or at least the potential to describe the solution, so get them to talk about it. Get them to propose something. There's no criticisms. You don't say, that's a stupid idea, that's never going to work. You say, hmm, that's, that's interesting. I wouldn't have come up with that. That's why you're here to tell me those things. I, you want to try it and see how it goes? That's okay. Let's see. It may be that it works, it may be that it doesn't. The person comes back and tells you that. You say, okay, well, it's a good idea. It was a new idea, and you tried something. Great work. Let's try something else. Supporting self efficacy. Understanding people's beliefs about their ability to change are directly related to their capacity for change. And the provider believes in the client's ability to decide when and how to make the desired changes. It's all about being optimistic. It's all about saying, this is really good that you are trying this. This is how I might help you tweak things. This is what I think you can do more of. This is why I think this didn't quite work. I don't want you to be discouraged. It's great that you're making these efforts. Strategies. Well, assessing the stages of change, there are various ways in which to ask people and gauge where they are in their process of wanting to do that. Mostly through open-ended questions and asking them, what do you do now? Um, Asking a question, repeating it back to them, asking a new question to, to collaborate with them and get them to describe things. In a non-judgmental way, trying to lay out the pros and cons of any given scenario or any given decision that they're going to make. Well, this is what I see as plus, this is what I see as minus. What do you think? Emphasizing this aspect of you can do it, I've got confidence in you, change is important because it's going to get you closer to the goal that you want to reach. These are your values getting you to focus and, and actually lay out an agenda that, where, in which you would consider change, and then to plan some actions so that you can try change. Because any behavior, any new set of behaviors or positive habits is built on practice. <clears throat> so what's the, out, the optimistic outcome for this patient? Well, the patient acknowledged wanting to change but didn't have a plan or think they had the skills to do that. There's standing schedules of benzodiazepines and a switch to extended release and long-acting opioids. Instead of taking things on a PRN basis, let's take that out of the equation. Eventually we're gonna get you off of these medicines, but we want you to take them on a regular schedule. Get rid of all of the interdose withdrawal, all of the intoxication, stabilize the situation. As the adverse effects of the medication subsided, The patient actually found it easier to engage in the process because they're not in withdrawal, they're not intoxicated, they're more stable. Their sleep improved without medication. This this just happened to me the other day. I was taking care of a patient I've taken care of for a long time. He's been asking for Ambien for, for months. And me and the primary care doctor have been saying no, no, no. Why don't you go do this? Why don't you go do that? Why don't you try this?" Eventually his wife said, I'm going to a mindfulness seminar. I wish you'd come with me. So he did. He comes home, he comes back to see me. He says, you know, I am sleeping better than I've ever had in my life because I'm following this mindfulness protocol. I thought it was bullshit, but it actually works. He's a narcissistic litigator, but... um, Okay. Glad it did. I didn't have anything to do with it. Never mentioned it before. Anxiety improved mastery of relaxation techniques, increased energy and improved self-efficacy, facilitated her ability to go into physical therapy and make progress. (coughs) Really liked the group therapy because it reinforced new behaviors when she was confronted by peers who she thought actually had been through this before and had made progress. So it wasn't me, it was an actual expert, so to speak. Acknowledge using medications as a poor coping strategy. This isn't really helping me. I never really get that much better, but I don't know what else to do. Now I do. And with improvement and stabilization, she was able to be tapered off of benzos and opioids successfully. All right. For those of you who have managed to last this long, um, I'll take you into the last perspective, life stories. So the idea with life stories is that you are all living a unique narrative, even though you share several major themes. You got married, you went to school, you have a job, some of you have kids, etc., etc. The idea behind stories is that there's a setting, a sequence of events, and an outcome. But the events are meaningful, and your interpreting those events, and that's how you decide whether your story is one of success or failure. And so patients come to us saying, why me? Why did I get sick? I can't believe this is happening to me. I wasn't supposed to get cancer. How am I going to go forward? And you have to help them deal with that. So life stories really have to do with what patients want as opposed to what patients are doing, or who they are, or what they have. And oftentimes, it's the unintended consequences that result from their intentional actions that are the problem. These meaningful events have accumulated to produce a, a story for understanding why. Why have these things happened? All of us are doing that as human nature, constantly trying to figure out why does this happen, why is that happening. <clears throat> and when you're working with somebody in the life story, what you're really trying to do is take their meaningful connections or interpretations and replace them with new interpretations to give them a sense that there is hope for the future. Despite this, you can overcome and you can have a satisfying outcome. Yes. Michael Clark, you were born in Iowa. It's going to be okay. All right. <laughs> what should you do when you're working with somebody? Well, you have to really hear the story. How many you got fired from your job? Okay. Has that ever happened before? Oh, three times? Okay, well, tell me about those jobs and those circumstances. All right. Understand what it means to the patient to suffer from their illness. Some, some patients It's a disaster because they're not healthy anymore. Other people, it's like, well, you know, everybody in my family got something, and so, you know, this is my deal. Help the patient find an answer to the question of, what good does life hold for me? And recognize that there is not just one true story. That's the the life story perspective, is there are infinite interpretations. If I were to walk into this room, come up to... Two people here and tell each one, your mother just died. One person might say, oh my God, she was the light of my life. She helped me overcome every challenge. She was always there for me. I'm devastated. I don't know what I'm going to do without her. And another person might say, thank God that is dead (laughs) because she made my life a living hell. It's the same words, but yet, very different interpretations, because it's very personal. And I can't tell you how you should feel about that statement, not knowing you and without your input. So, here's our case again. Pain turns out to be variable, from the patient being pain-free to having severe pain with associated fatigue. The depression really is more episodic with, crying spells when she thinks about how it used to be when she was healthy. At her worst, pain is uncontrollable and the situation seems hopeless to her. She's alienated her support system with intrusive distress, always kind of seeking reassurance and telling people how badly she's doing. Her husband notes she's always flying off the handle for no reason, he's kind of sick of that. And her work, which was a source of pride and validation of her success in life, that has been lost to her. So, how would you approach this person? Which is different, and we think of now more as being an example of grief and catastrophizing. Well, we start by trying to explain that the reactive state of demoralization and what that is, and also that she's going through a grieving process. Try to normalize negative feelings as very legitimate and needing validation not something to be resisted and and pathologized. Introduce the concept of acceptance and value-based goals for how to move forward. Discontinue all PRN medications like muscle relaxants, NSAIDs, sleep aids, tramadol because they're not really helping her at all. Refer her for interpersonal psychotherapy that would include her husband to do some marital work. Redirect previous work skills into sales um, and, and learning, uh, catastrophizing, develop problem-solving self-talk for rumination and helplessness, referring her to occupational therapy and voc rehab, and finding a support group for professionals who are changing careers in midlife. People she can identify with, people that have had similar experiences, things that she can feel good about and n- feel are normalized as opposed to illness. So. The idea behind a personal story is that that everybody has this sense of potential or hope for what they want out of life. A series of events may result which hopes have not been realized or potential is not fulfilled, and demoralization occurs when the patient reaches the meaningful realization that some aspect of their personal life is a failure. And that's what you're trying to help people overcome when you remoralize them. Now, with bereavement, there have been a number of, of good studies about grief uh, over the course of life. You've all heard of kubler rosss stages, but I'm here to tell you about a different set of phases of grief and the behaviors of grief. Bowlby and Parks describe these phases, uh, whereas Kubler-Ross is not a progression per se. You can flip back and forth between acceptance and depression and anger and all the rest. But Bowlby and Parks described that people kind of start off in a classic grief reaction with this numbness and disbelief that, that this has actually happened. And that there'll be a form of search behavior, looking for the person who's gone. That then there are these pinings or pangs of grief with apathy and anxiety where you're just, you're just missing the person, it's just so upsetting. Then there's a period of disorganization and despair where you really just don't, you're not very productive and you're kind of ruminating about how did this happen and how am I going to make it and what's going to happen next? And then finally there's a sense of reorganization. Your normal drives start to come back and you kind of begin to move forward in your life again despite the loss. You see this in these behaviors of grief where in the immediate phase you will have patients described to you searching for the person that's gone. I thought they were in the other room or I thought I heard them or I felt them in bed next to me and I looked for them and they weren't there. Um, There are these wellings that are evoked. Somebody who's been through uh, a severe grief, if something reminds them of the person, they will oftentimes just burst into tears almost in an embarrassed way, like they had no control over it, and then it'll evaporate. And you'll see those continue for years in the future. There's a loss of drive, which is typically more acute, where people just aren't interested in doing much. And and then there's this repetition of events that can last for up to a year, where people are kind of pouring over, you know, I should have done something differently, or I wish this hadn't happened, or if only that had gone differently. So there are components of grief where people have an urge to look back. They tend to cry and look for what's lost. There's also an urge to look forward and try to explore the world that now lies in front of them and discover, what am I going to carry forward from my past? How am I going to merge the two? Um, And there are lots of pressures that influence how those urges are expressed or inhibited in different cultures. In some forms, it's fair in some forums, in some cultures, it's very acceptable to do one set of things and not another. And there's not really any right answer. It's a matter of how do you move forward in the story. And what determines the outcome? Well, there are aspects of the circumstances of the life-changing event. Did you anticipate that the loss was coming? Was it a massive or a series of changes that occurred? Were the events brutal or violent or unexpected, those those are harder to get through. Um, Your personality and your previous experience makes a difference. If if you have more self-confidence, if you've had prior success in resolving earlier transitions in your life, you're more likely to navigate a grief successfully. Um, There are factors that impinge after the event. What kind of social support do you have? What kind of opportunities for new roles to make up for the loss and, and the loss of the roles that went with that loss? Those will help you to move forward. There, there are different types of loss, really. If you, if you sit and think about it, the one we typically refer to is you know somebody close to us dies um, and we grieve that. But, Think about the other forms of loss that you might experience in the course of your life. There's the loss of innocence or novelty. All right? The breaking of a vow, the committing of a crime. How many of you have ever stolen a candy bar? Don't raise your hand. Um, <clears throat> all right, these are first experiences. This is the first time I did that. This is the first time I didn't live up to my promise in some way and usually what is highlighted in those experiences are regret i wish i hadn't done that i feel bad about that but you gain experiences uh, experience through those actions because you in some way realize you screwed up and you need to try harder and do differently in the future and that's where courage is the achievement you know i can I can face this situation or this temptation in the future and I think I can resist it. And I think I can be better. Then there's the loss of affiliation or familiarity. The the classic is homesickness. You go to college or you get a divorce. And, And these losses are the result of separations from things that are familiar, both people and environments. And the highlighted feeling here is one of yearning. I really want to go home. I really want to be back there. I can't believe that I'm standing here in this campus and I don't know a single soul. Um, But yet what's gained out of these losses is the potential. I can do something new. I can make a difference in my life. I can get something out of this. And so the achievement is really one of temperance restraint. Yes, I can do this. I won't just go back. I won't do something crazy. I won't do something impulsive, but I'm on a path um, accomplishing things. Then there's the loss that has to do with the loss of a cherished possession or your identity. The Examples here are getting older, getting sick, retirement, losing a limb, and they result really from Some form of neglect or just entropy. You know, we're all slowly falling apart. Sorry to tell you that. (laughs) And the feeling here is one of disappointment. You know, I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like I did when I was 18. Um, I go and try and do some exercise and the next day I wake up and I feel miserable. Um, Whereas before that didn't happen. But what's gained in these losses is a sense of appreciation. Look at where I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I really do cherish and how I'm going to keep going. So the achievement is really one of prudence, forcing you to reason through and understand and put things in perspective. And then the last type of loss I'll talk about is the loss of love. the death or atrocities that we're subjected to, these, these really are the result of unthinkable things, awful things that you don't really ever want to hear about her face. And The feeling that you have when those things occur is one of hopelessness. I, I, I can't imagine overcoming this, I can't imagine that anything this horrible could happen to a human being, but yet it did. And Hopefully what comes out of these losses is some sense of fulfillment and the achievement is one of justice where you, it forces you to think about the morality and how you interact with other people and what your ethics are and how you can make the world a better place. So there are elements of intervention uh, in grief. Um, your, your helpers are agents of change. Um, it's good to have access to expertise, whether it's peers or practitioners. You need support, both in terms of time to get through it, but also people's compassion and counsel. And then there are the rituals. If you think about the losses that we incur, um, all of them are accompanied by some ritual that carries us through, whether it's a funeral or a matriculation ceremony or something like that. There's Opportunities to reduce distress and various ways to do that. Um, There are ways that we educate and guide one another in preparing for these losses. There's a lot that goes into thinking about leaving home or thinking about someone about to die. Uh, There are ways in which we try to build self-efficacy, confidence that you can get through it and optimism that it will be okay. And there are opportunities for practice, whether it's reflecting on the situation or or even engaging in some form of simulation of what it occurs. There are aspects of treatment that occur or take place even prior to the loss. Um, Guidance requires time and so it's good to have some preparation and know that something is coming. Um, You can prepare the person for the loss in some ways, not completely. You can listen to what the person already knows is going to occur. Um, because it's very important to know where they are. You can ask them questions and give them information. You can monitor what's understood for them. You can permit and normalize their reactions. It's a good test phase to say, well, that's perfectly natural. That's okay. Um, You can let the person control the amount and flow of information that they can handle. I'm not ready to hear that yet, or I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand that. Oh, well, let's talk about that later then. Here's a little chunk of information for you. And then there's the treatment that occurs after the loss. The emotional support that's needed um, for those that are also grieving the deceased, there's support from those people. Um, there are people that are grieving for the survivor. How, how is that person going to make it? Um, And there are those who are going through similar types of grief, although independent. And of course, as I mentioned before, there's the ritual guidance primarily that comes from religion that support interactions with the deceased. There are lots of people that talk about still having conversations with the person that's gone and and talking about what has been lost. Um, There's the blessing and forgiveness for guilt that people have about what they could have done or should have done or the fact that they're still here. And there is the environment or venue for keeping people engaged with others so they don't just drift away and end up isolated. There's therapy from professionals who can review your relationships with the deceased and recognize the changes in your emotions, help you work through those negative feelings that, that come with loss, allow you to express your sorrow and sense of loss, formulate an acceptable future, not only to the person who's gone, but also to help you think about what are you going to do going forward? Are you going to have another relationship? Are you going to be able to do something without what you've lost? And how will we map that out? And is that okay? So, it's tasks. And the idea behind helping somebody through grief is that you want them to do something. That's one of the themes here, is practice. Do something. See how it goes. Um, Working with people that have disabling chronic pain, it's all about what can you get them to do. And with grief, you see that there is some work that has to do with accepting the reality of the loss. Don't, Don't just let the denial sit and fester. It's okay to be in pain from the grief and so you can experience that and in general we ask people to go ahead and experience their pain or their depression or their distress. There's nothing wrong with that. Adjust to a changed world without the deceased or without the health or without whatever it is that you've lost because it's a challenge that you're gonna have to overcome and meet and that's what life is in general challenges. And take the emotional energy withdraw it from what's lost and reinvest it somewhere else. Think about who you're going to engage with, what you're going to do differently, and how you can invest in a life going forward. So it's not just a process of waiting out a series of predictable emotional transitions. This is not sitting in a canoe and going through the rapids. This is an individual period of action where you're going to restructure a personal world of meaning that's been challenged or devastated, Affirm a life that's forever transformed by loss and renew oneself with the gains of hard work and achievements that you have realized. So what's the optimistic outcome for this case scenario? The grief improved with less frequent crying spells and a sense of losing control as the person engaged with thinking about where they are and what they needed to do. They re-scripted their life story with a focus on a new potential for success. You know, I really can do better. I really can have a satisfying life. They began to build a support network of professional women who were sharing techniques with each other about how do you handle life transitions? How do you change careers? How do you deal with this phase of life versus that phase of life? She started her own business, a nonprofit resource center for pain and began to focus on helping others. She focused on marital therapy with the themes of complementary strengths that she and her husband possessed and how they could work together and shore each other up rather than pick each other apart. She settled her workman's comp claim. Why? To eliminate the distractions and the negative stress and the constant forms and the scrutiny and the surveillance and all the other junk that comes with that. Move forward you're not going to win the lottery. She stopped all of her medication, citing that she had more confidence in doing it herself. And she developed her own toolkit for pacing through her daily life to avoid depleting her gas tank of energy and resources to get through the day and through the week and through the month. So, what I've hoped to introduce to you is really a number of different perspectives that relate to one another, but which can explain different aspects of what it is that we're doing um, when we're interacting with people that have chronic pain but many underlying different problems. There there are the components of psychological life. There are the faculties that are generated by our brain. There are our motivational interests. There are our constitutional dimensions. And there's our own personal development. Mental disorders uh, derive from these components because life stories get disrupted, Um, certain dispositions are problematic in certain situations, behavioral disorders can emerge out of misplaced goals and drives, and psychiatric diseases can occur when your brain doesn't function quite right. And so we look for the cures of those dysfunctions, we try to interrupt problematic behaviors, try to guide people into better circumstances that play to their strengths, and we help people to re-script their negative interpretations. So, with diseases, we're fixing the broken parts to restore function, recognizing that the downside is any repair can cause more damage. With dimensional trait problems, we're guiding people towards their strengths to restore a sense of balance, but all guidance is paternalistic. If you tell somebody you should do X rather than Y, if you don't have the relationship, you're seen as overly paternalistic and dictatorial. With behaviors, we're trying to interrupt the acts that people are engaging in to restore more appropriate drives and goals, but all demands to stop doing something stigmatize that. You shouldn't be seeing the doctor. You shouldn't be smoking. You shouldn't be overeating. I have a right to do that, how dare you tell me that. And with life events, you interpret meanings to help restore a sense of mastery and potential for success. But remember, all interpretations are hostile. If you don't have a solid relationship with somebody and you tell them, this is why I think you always do that, this is why I think you always end up with men like that, what do you get? You don't know me. How dare you tell me that? I'm going to get back together with him. Ugh. All right. So, I hope I've gotten you to think a little bit about interesting things. I appreciate you sticking it out with me for a long two hours. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much.